Now, to, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boar Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in the favor with God and man. And the people of God says, Amen to God's word. Give me one second. Let me get my clicker ready. And we'll really get started. Um, Luke chapter 1 through 2 can be qualified as a time lapse. As it is written, as it is with all the chapters in the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, Matthew, I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the little white spaces between the lines. The scripture doesn't give us a time sequence, so we have to be mindful when the subject of time is at hand in scripture. But for Luke gospel, Luke started his gospel, he, he set the stage sharing to anyone who reads his gospel that God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin who was called Mary. Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 are the emphasy passages about Jesus' conception and birth. So as it is with John the Baptist. However, in the latter part of Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52, is about Jesus as a teenager, uh, teenage boy, until he reaches adulthood. These verses do not include any miracles. 
there are no angels visiting uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus in these passages. Like the angel who shared the good news to Gabriel, uh, to Zechariah, or to the shepherds when they first received word from the angel and they visited Nazareth to see the little baby boy. There's nothing supernatural about these verses. However, the significance of these verses is the relationship Jesus has with his Father who is in heaven. That is the crux of this text. This is the point that Luke is making. That the only begotten Son, the only Son of God, has a relationship with his Father, who is in heaven. And as we can see in our text, 12 years passed from the time that Jesus first visited the temple as a baby. And in that, and this was the same time that Simeon, a devout Jew, blessed Joseph and Mary concerning their, their child, Jesus. And this was the, and you can read um, Simeon's praise of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verses 29 through 35. But here, these verses, 41 through 52, is the 12th year for Joseph and Mary to visit the temple as a couple. And it's the same length of years that Jesus was visiting or went with his parents to the temple. Why were they there? Why Joseph and Mary alone with the young boy Jesus completed this pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem? What motivated them to travel 80 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem. That lasted up to three to four days. Well, it was their custom to visit the temple every year. And as we can see in our texts, it was because of the Passover. Also, it was their heart desire to be with God's people. More importantly, to be with God. They were there to commemorate and celebrate the feast of the Passover. The Passover was Israel's national holiday. This holiday was uh, celebrated and remembered uh, that God allowed a death angel to kill all the firstborn in Egypt and who did not wipe, um, spread the blood of the Lamb above their doorposts, their firstborn was dead too because they disobeyed God's word. So Israel commemorate this holiday for themselves to realize what God has done in Egypt to deliver them from bondage, to deliver them from enslavement. According to Exodus chapter 
23, verse 17, God commanded all Jewish males to travel to Jerusalem to partake in the Passover. Um, Some women uh, were encouraged, although it wasn't a requirement, to participate in the Passover. But Joseph and Mary, they did it this every year. They were there. Some of the uh, Jewish people, they travel 200 miles or more to make it to Jerusalem because you have to be mindful that many of the Jewish people were dispersed within the world. So Joseph and Mary, they only had to travel 80 miles or so. Other people have to travel much further than that. What does this exemplify for us? This, their pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem exemplifies their devotion and obedience to God in his word. This is what they're demonstrating to us today. Their custom to travel to Jerusalem was at their expense. It costed them time and energy and be mindful that they were financially poor. How do I know this? Because when they offered a sacrifice they, uh, to the priests, they offered two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Wealthy Jewish people would have offered um, a lamb or a coat, something that is very expensive. But Joseph and Mary, they weren't rich. They were rich in heart, but they weren't financially rich. But what they knew is that being with other believers and obeying God's word is worth it all. It's it's worth their time and their energy. So this is why they travel. They wanted to be with the believers, strengthen their walk with the Lord. Let's kind of separate them a little bit. Because they were the Jews who belonged to the faithful remnant of God in Israel because they believed by faith and not by works. They believed by faith and not by works. We all know what James says, right? Show me your faith and finish it. I will show you my works. Therefore, they were willing to travel as many miles needed to celebrate the Passover. They were the ones that follow Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. Or as, the, as we always quote the KJV, the King James Version, which says, forsake not the assembly of the saints. They didn't want that follow this to the T. Their devotion was not only in word, but it was the demonstration of their deeds. 
They were not your modern Christians um, who have every excuse in a book, who has the ability to do something but do not do it, who has the heart to do it but, but struggle with apathy. Joseph and Mary wasn't like that. Let me ask you this question. If you had the ability to fast-forward your life up to 12 years, would you do it? This is exactly what Luke did in his gospel as he wrote about the life of Jesus. Verse 42 says, Jesus was 12 years old, and they went up according to custom. He was 12 years old, and they went up according to custom. This, that day for Jesus was a momentous day. He was 12 years old. It was the feast of the Passover. And I don't know if you know about anything about Jewish customs and traditions, but whenever a Jewish boy turns 12, that means he is becoming a man. He is becoming an adult. That he is now becoming morally and legally accountable to God's word. It means that under God's law, that is the Mosaic law, young Jewish boys at the age of 12 were considered to be legal adults. This is why Mary, who was 13 at the time, married a 14-year-old man who was named Joseph. because they both were considered as legal adults to be betrothed to each other. In the United States, we consider legal adults as 18-year-olds. That's, the, that's when they are be, uh, held accountable for their own actions. Uh, they are not considered as teenagers under the but they are considered as adults under the United States judicial law. If an 18-year-old commits a, a heinous crime, he, will, he or she will be charged as, a, as an adult. Compared to a 16 or 15 or 13, whatever the case may be, they will be charged as, an, as a child. So the point Luke is making is that Jesus was becoming of age. He was becoming a man. You know, and this held him accountable to God's law. And keep in mind, once Jesus turned 13 years old, his parents, Joseph and Mary, would have commenced a ceremony, a ceremony that is called Bar Mitzvah, which literally means son of the law or son of the commandment. And this ceremony signified that he was a legal, a legal adult equal to his parents. This is like saying 
uh, Mark Jr. is equal to his father at the age of 13. And when he turned 13 years old, he was no longer a boy, but a man who was responsible to God's law. This is the difference from our society. We believe in that accordingly, that 13-year-old boys are boys, not men, but Jesus was no ordinary boy. He was and will forever be God, the second person of the Trinity. Many 12 and 13-year-old boys are ignorant. They are self-conceited. And as statistics shows, that they mature slower than females. I hear a lot of females. (laughs) But they may also mature in a life of sin. I work with boys. I can tell the difference between a good 13-year-old boy and a bad little boy. But this is the stark difference between Jesus. That Jesus matured in holiness as a young boy. That he faced, that he had to face the temptation of lust and greed and anger and rebellion and jealousy and all kinds of covetousness as a young boy. But he faced those temptations without ever sinning. He was the perfect child that every parent wanted. Every parent wishes their children was like Jesus. He was the little angel, figuratively speaking. Can you say that about your kids? You know... Most people recite passages like Psalms 119, verse 43, which says, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Or passages like Psalms 119, verse 44, um, which wasn't written for Jesus. It was written for sinners. Again, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe, observe it with my whole heart. That wasn't written for Jesus. In fact, Jesus wrote that particular passage through the inspiration of, the, of that author. It was written for us, for you and me. It was not one point that Jesus ever needed understanding as a little boy. He observed the law from age nine months up to 12 years, or however you want to put it. We are the ones who need understanding. We are the ones who have broken God's laws. Jesus is the author of God's law, and there was never a moment in Jesus' life where he did not uphold God's law. Can we ever say that we have not broken God's law? I tell you, I was a a tyrant as a kid. 
I even apologize to my teachers in school. And right now I'm feeling regretful of how much I terrorized them. I apologize to my mother, like, Mom, thank you so much for whooping me. God knows I needed that whooping. It cured me of smoking. You see, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, honor thy father and thy mother, that your days may be long. It didn't apply to Jesus. Apply to us. So we have broken God's law, and that, and we have broken that particular law by disobeying our parents. If you have broken God's law, here is my plea to you to trust in Jesus as your Savior because He is your only hope of salvation. Nevertheless, this is what it meant for Jesus to be a 12-year-old boy who was held accountable and of, of upholding God's law. And as the text went on about the Feast of the Passover, you know, when they did the Feast of the Passover, the priests would have been slaughtering animals every single hour. It would have been covered in blood from head to toe. And the temple walls would have been splattered with blood. The Feast of the Passover lasted for eight days. It wasn't just the Passover itself. It was uh, several over, I mean, several um, holidays that the uh, Jews um, celebrated. But it lasted eight days, and each individual and their family owned their own uh, animal to be offered and offered that animal to the priests. So the number of animals that were slaughtered could have been in the hundred thousand or more. That was the scene of the Passover. But be mindful, that was also the fate of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a young boy who knew he was God's sacrificial lamb heading towards the temple watching these animals being slaughtered. Uh, his parents were, he and his parents were celebrating the Passover and presenting their own sacrifice to the priest to be slain. I wonder if Joseph and Mary really grasped the gravity of their child who they were holding or walking hand by hand, leading him to the temple. Did they understand that he was going to be sacrificed? Their own child? They probably didn't know. 
that their own child, Jesus Christ, was and is the ultimate sacrifice for the sin of the world. And I, I, I believe that they really didn't know that they possess the only sacrifice that would do away with temple sacrifices. I'm sure Jesus knew and foresaw his own death. He knew within 18 to 21 years, depending on the dating, people date Jesus' death at age 30, other people date his age at uh, death at age 33. So depending on the dating, I, I, I believe that he knew that God the Father predestined him to be sacrificed as a sacrificial lamb. To die upon the cross in a place of undeserving sinners. This is why John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the book of Revelation, it says, everyone whose name have not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Jesus Christ was that Lamb who was slain. And in his 12-year-old mind, He understood the gravity of his own death. He knew the scriptures. He knew that Abraham was going to sacrifice his own son. And that story was a foreshadowing of his own death. Verse 42, I mean 43 says, And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, as I have stated, the Feast of the Passover lasted for eight days, and Joseph and Mary stayed the entire uh, eight days. But now the feast has ended. It was time for them to travel an additional 80 miles back to Nazareth from Jerusalem, according to verse 43. Now, we should know, um, we should know, well, I'll put it this way. When I, when I was going through this text, I was saying to myself, well, we shouldn't complain about traveling at all. Not one single bit. We, we shouldn't complain about the traffic, we shouldn't complain about the roadways, the highways, Route 8. We shouldn't complain about none of this stuff. As I said to myself, here is a couple that didn't have any automobiles. We travel faster than they could have ever uh, done. I, I, I even Google this. If, if, you, if you walk from this location to the city of, um, Cleveland, the city of Cleveland, 
it would take you 14 hours to do that. Just by walking. But we know we're not going to walk. We're going to drive there. Unless you're an exercise guru. But it'll take you approximately 12 to 14 hours. Now imagine Mary and Joseph traveling from Jerusalem in a caravan and returning to Nazareth in the same manner. That equals up to 160 miles a round trip. 160 miles walking back and forth. I can barely run five miles, but 160 miles of a walk is long. Why am I saying this? Because Luke is adding tension to the story by telling us, as they were returning to Nazareth, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents assume that he was with their relatives or neighbors or acquaintances. But he was not. And typically how Jewish people travel, they travel within the group, so the females will be ahead, the females and children will be ahead, and the men will be behind. And they'll just travel in sections as they go to until they reach a destination. And they thought that Jesus was in one of those groups. The text says, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. That's. So you you telling me that I have to travel an additional 160 miles to search for Jesus? Now, when I was a teenager, my family and I took a uh, family vacation to Florida, and I vividly remember once we arrived at our destination, we all checked in into our hotels, and my nephew, along with my little cousin, they were very little, probably five at age five, or probably younger, or age six, depending. My memory escapes me, but I remember that they wander off. No one ever, no one knew where they were. No one even gauged that they were missing until everybody started realizing, like, where's my nephew and my cousin? So another cousin of mine, so we, I was probably around the age of 13, we started banging on the hotel doors because in our minds, they, they couldn't have one that far. They were young. So we knocked on hotel doors. We walked around the hotels. We couldn't find them. And eventually, out of nowhere, here is my little nephew, and along with my cousin, standing there crying. Crying. Now, I believe that they were adopted for those 30 minutes that they were missing. They were adopted against their will. So I told my cousins, 
grandmother what I suspect happened. Only God really knows what happened. And any parent will be anxious over their missing child. Every good parent will search anxiously for their child until they are found. And this is the exact feeling for Joseph and Mary. After they realize that Jesus never returned to Nazareth. Mary must have felt like the worst parent ever to lose the Son of God. To lose God's only begotten Son. How can you lose God's Son? I'm teasing. I'm sure she felt that she needed to find her firstborn son. So, like any good parent would do, it will go from go to hell and back to search for their child. And the obvious point of reference for Mary was back to Jerusalem. You have to ask these questions because I know I did as I was going through this text. Was Jesus being disobedient towards Mary and Joseph? Did he not know that his parents were going to be worried about his well-being? How could he do such a thing? I'm sure you ask your kids that, right? What were you thinking? That was basically what Mary asked at the end of these verses. Jesus, what were you thinking? But we have to be mindful. He wasn't being disobedient towards his parents by staying behind in Jerusalem. Nor was his parents irresponsible for not knowing where Jesus' whereabouts. Jesus was not a delinquent young boy. He was not like those other kids on Dr. Field's show who complains about not having enough money or not purchasing the latest gadget or fancy clothing. It wasn't like that. Even what Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 says, Luke, can you, uh, Mark, can you connect me to Prizzy, please? It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. I want to say, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord.
And as Mark, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 7, verse 9 through 11, it says, And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were obviously hypocritical in their standards always finding, trying to find loopholes in God's law, which is there isn't a loophole. So in Mark chapter 7, verse 9 through 11, Jesus talked about traditions of how the Pharisees uphold the tradition of man, but rejected the commandment of God. And he says, you have find a, you have have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. For Moses says, honor your father and your mother, and whoever revows father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you no longer Permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Jesus never acted in that manner. He never, it wasn't about tradition for him to stay behind in Jerusalem. He wasn't, he didn't need discipline or instruction. In which he he never acted in a manner in which his parents questioned him behaviorally. Again, he was there was no need to. He was the perfect child. He always honored his parents despite any traditions. Ephesians chapter six verses verses one through four, and Mark chapter uh, seven verses nine through eleven doesn't apply to him. Like, for example, if, like I said before, you and I have, if you ever got a spanking, raise your hand, right? Those two passages, Ephesians and also Mark, apply to us. But why? Why did Jesus stay behind? What prompted Jesus to not return to Nazareth when his parents expected him to come back. Have you ever thought about that? Because the Senate would say, aha, Jesus is never God because he did not honor his mother and father. Here's the answer that I believe is the correct answer. Because he was more obligated to honor his heavenly father more than his earthly parents. He was obligated to honor his heavenly father more than his earthly parents. Another way of understanding this as follows. It is always important to be obedient towards your mom and your dad is because God has placed you with them to be their child. Uh, when I was doing my interim pastorship back in Georgia, I remember an older couple um, in their 80s still taking care of their 90-year-old dad. 
that is what the extent of honoring your father and mother extends to. You, is, you honor them regardless in health and also in sickness. But what if your parents are not married? What if they're divorced? What if they are um, in a same-sex relationship? What if they're just cuckoo? What do you do then? Should I still honor and honor my father and my mother? Yes. Yes. Just because your parents are not what God wanted them to be doesn't mean that God is going to bend his laws. What if my parents are atheists? And they tell me to do something contrary to God's law. And, and this is the only exception that I see in Scripture when you say, no, I cannot do that. If your parents give you an instruction that disobey God's law, then this is the only exception. You say, no. There's such a thing as, I see, I think faces is looking at me like, What? <laughs> We have civil disobedience in Scripture. When the law tells us to do something contrary to God's law, that's the only disobedience that we have in Scripture that give us the permission to say no to that particular law. This is exactly what Peter and John did when they told, when the Sanhedrin told Peter and John not to uh, preach Jesus anymore. And they said, well, for us to follow this, you have to be the judge, but we have to do what God says. Paraphrasing Travis' translation. But for Jesus, although this wasn't disobedience at all, it was the case for him to stay behind because he knew he was compelled by his heavenly father to be where he needed to be. And he did that. And I'm not going to get into the hypostatic union, the doctrine of the hypostatic union, but we from to extrapolate from that doctrine, we understand that Jesus knew that he was God. He knew he was the son of God. He knew he was the second person of the Trinity. So by knowing his divinity, he was compelled to be where he needed to be. Verses 46 and 47 says, After Joseph and Mary searched for three days... They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. They were astonished. 
They found him in the temple, listening, understanding, providing answers to theological questions. Again, he was listening, he was understanding, and he was answering. He was amongst wise teachers who memorized scripture, who studied God's word diligently. But when the people, when the people had theological questions, the teachers and the rabbis, in that particular setting, they were asking Jesus, a 12-year-old boy. You know, we compare this act of Jesus, of being diligent and understanding and listening and then giving answers. We compare that ideal to, to modern-day Christians. I wonder how we truly measure up to this. I wonder, can we give a decent answer to questions when people ask us about theological topics? I, I, maybe this is the critic within me that says that there's a lot of Christians, most Christians cannot do this. Most, the average Christian cannot go to the average atheist and, or Jehovah Witness or the Mormon. You pick a religion and compare and, and, and have a Christian to debate that particular person in that other religion. Can that Christian hold his own grounds by giving biblical and reasonable answers? No. This is why Scripture says to study thyself to show to study thy, to show thyself. Right, help me out, folks. Thank you. I need help. <laughs> but this wasn't the case for Jesus. Paul says, as I try to get it out of my mind and to my mouth, Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Here's a measuring, uh, measuring read, right? Do you read the Bible? Is it yearly? Have you read the Bible from cover to cover? Every single year? Have you, or is it your, your, your studying, is it more lazy, and to, to be frank? You just read it every so often. Is, are you more on the lines of being distracted by this world than being enriched by God's word? You know, in this setting that Jesus was in, when his mother and his adopted father saw him, they were astonished. The setting that he was in, it was more on the lines of 
a lot of students surrounding the teacher. The teacher was right in the middle. The students were around the rabbi or the teacher who was, who was uh, handling God's word. Jesus was right there listening, understanding, and answering. And it was an enriched... I know when I was at TFC or Atlanta Christian College, um, you know, I had a very ego when it comes to theological doctrines. Scripture says, knowledge does what? Puffs up. And my head puffed up like a balloon. Learning all this information. My teacher don't know this. Uh, it's wrong, but I knew I had to agree with my teacher to get the good grade, so that's what I did anyway. But Jesus was a humble individual, a humble 12-year-old individual, a student. And in this instance, the student became the teacher. And everybody was amazed at his understanding of God's word. You know, Psalms chapter 119, verse 99 says, and 100 says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I have understanding more than the age. Psalms 119, verses 99 through 100. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I have understanding more than the age, for I keep your precepts. Can I, you know, I, I'm in my 30s, I'm 33 years old, um, and I know that I am not wise. I have some wisdom as I continue to live my life. But one thing that I do know, as long as I continue to keep my head and my face and my eyes down in God's word and continue to always study to show myself approved, who rightly handle the word of God, I will be wiser than any earthly teacher here, any of my peers When it comes to God's word, it doesn't discriminate because you're older or younger. But it does tell us to take heed of it, to read it, to digest it, to to meditate upon it, to chew on it like a a cow chews on a um, cud. Is this true for you? Are people amazed by your understanding of God's word, or do people turn away because turn away from you because of your ignorance of God's word? The teachers were amazed by Jesus, and so was his parents. After finding him in the temple, they were astonished by what they observed that the temp, that the day in the temple while Jesus was learning. 
They were not expecting Jesus to be in the temple with all the teachers of Judaism. They probably were expecting him to be wandering around with other kids. This is what 12-year-old boys do. They play with other 12-year-olds. But not Jesus. He was there grasping. His, his, his divinity compelled him to be there. His humanity was seeking and learning to understand all that is about him. His humanity was trying to grasp who he was. It is when Jesus started to fully understand that he was different than most kids. That he was God's begotten son who was forever eternally begotten before the foundation of the world. He was always with God. If you try to explain the hypostatic union, uh, and that means God, uh, the second person of the Trinity, is 100% man and 100% God to anyone, including myself, you would not, never understand. You, you could try to come up with phrases and terms to grasp this doctrine, or if you try to explain the Trinity, you would never understand it. Now imagine Jesus, his humanity, grasping this understanding and really coming to grips of who he was. It still is. Nevertheless, after finding your missing child, what will you say to them after searching and seeking them? What would you actually say to them? Most of you probably knock your child upside the head. I know my mom would. That's just the truth of the matter. My mom is, what, five-something? I'm still scared of her. So I, 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 I try to imagine that here's Jesus, and Joseph and Mary finally arrive at Jesus, uh, with Jesus, and Jesus in this, in this temple, in this classroom, and they finally see him, and this is what Mary said. She, she was, just, I'm sure she was ecstatic to find her missing child, but at the same time, I'm sure she was also angered. Like, why would you wander off? We had to travel 160 miles on one round trip. Now we got to travel another 160 miles to come back to get you and go back to Nazareth. That's your typical American parent would say that. But 
That's not what Mary said. She said in verse 48, his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. I think Mary was very careful with her words. Because she knew her that her child was very special. She, but at the same time, she is laying upon guilt. She laying guilt upon Jesus. The emotion here is that, why would you do this? We were worried, sick about you. Any child will feel guilty that they disappointed their mother or their father by doing such a thing. Why would you do this? Why are you treated me this way? Have we done something wrong? We were worried sick about you. We traveled a day's journey. And after three days, we finally found you. Well, this is totally understandable, isn't it? How she responded, uh, the questions that she said to Jesus. Any person who is in distress would say the same thing. And and I would say, from Mary and Joseph's perspective, she's asking these questions like, Jesus, please explain to us. We need some explanation of why you did what you did. Like I said, she asserted a mission of guilt upon Jesus. But I believe it was never Jesus' intention to place his parents in a predicament where they could be worried. This is why Jesus said what he said. This is the crux of the text. This is what Jesus said. Why were you looking for me? Kind of snarky, isn't it? No, it's not. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus is taking the responsibility of his earthly parents and being compelled to be responsible towards his heavenly father. We all know, and I'm sure that Mary knew, that Jesus was God's son. This is what we learned thus far in the book of uh, in the book of Luke, chapter one, that God, the Holy Spirit, by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, He moved upon Mary and she conceived in in, in her own womb. Jesus, even the uh, descriptions that Gabriel gave to Mary that Jesus will be the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. Joseph was not his father. It was his his, his, uh, adopted father. So he can receive the divinity 
an inheritance. But Jesus knew who his father was and will forever be. I am where I should be in my father's house. I turn to Mark chapter 3. No, I'm sorry. Turn to John chapter 17. 5, 17, I'm sorry. John chapter 5, verse 17. Let's read 16 and 17 together. This is what Jesus said. He said in John chapter 16, and this is why Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am Working. This is the very reason that Jesus was uh, persecuted and hung upon the cross. Let me put it this way. Every Jewish person knew that God is the father of all in, in, in a creation sense. That God created everything that we see and know to be true. But every Jewish person knew not to make uh, God the Father as a personal father. That's the big difference. To say, God the Father is my father. We have the exact imprint, the exact DNA. That is the difference. And this is, and Jesus knew this. The Apostle John knew it. All the disciples knew it. Uh, Paul knew it. Everybody knew it. It is explicitly there in Scripture that God the Son is God the Father. I mean, the God the Son is the Son of God the Father. But look at the next couple of verses. It says, And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. I'm sure they didn't fully grasp what he was actually saying. But just like an obedient child that he was, he was submissive. And as you can see, the title of the sermon is The Boar, the Father, in Submission. And that Jesus was submissive. He submitted to the authority of his earthly parents. As they travel another 160 miles back from Jerusalem to Nazareth, here is Mary contemplating and thinking about what does all this mean? 
And I will tell you. Very quickly, turn to Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. Mark chapter 3. I think this is a window to understanding Jesus and his position when it comes to his uh, relatives. Verse 31, Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35 says, And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent him to him and called him. They saying, okay, you're crazy, Jesus. What are you doing to all these miracles? Come back home. Do what you need to do. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Jesus is a lunatic. Every, I'm hearing all these rumors. I'm hearing all these things about Jesus. We're seeking him. Where is he? And Jesus responds in verse 33. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Verse 34, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. And here's the key text. Verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. When it comes to doing the will of God, relationship is obsolete. God's will is far more important than human will. So I say with traveling back to Nazareth, Mary's contemplating, thinking about what does all this mean? And we can see in verse 52 that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature in favor of God, which is the very last text of this verse. And this particular text means that he grew up into an older adult. That by this time he was around the age of, of 28 or maybe or 30 And we will not see Jesus until Luke chapter 4. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. I do ask that you will be gracious to us as we leave this place. I do thank you that that you have given us the mental stamina to be patient and to listen diligently. And if we have not did that, I pray that you will still compel us to dive in your word. I pray that you will help us to follow after Jesus' footsteps in this, according to this text. That we too can become wiser than our own teachers. And I most importantly, I pray that whatever the case may be, whatever the circumstances that we face, that we will always do your will. 
Because this is exactly what Jesus was doing. This is why he stayed in Jerusalem. 